there, fuckers. It's me, Holden McNeely, and this chunky boy is Jake Young. May the force be with ye. Jake, for the love of God. And we're here to tell you about The Wizard and the Bruiser, a podcast that uncovers the truth behind how your favorite superheroes, anime series, and video games became the pop culture juggernauts that we rely on to forget the pain of existence. We're not saying that this is the most informative geek history podcast ever, but I will promise you that you will learn enough to impress your one really weird cousin who always wears the Naruto headband. And if you are that weird cousin, let me just say, Arigato, Otaku Senpai. How was that, Jake? Acceptably racist. Hop on the way, way back machine as we take you to 1992 when Mortal Kombat ruled the arcades and kids were clamoring for the newest issue of Spawn. Or just sit back and relax as two aging comedians try to understand how the hell Minecraft managed to conquer the minds of our nation's chubbiest children. No matter what, we'll do our damnedest to make sure every episode is an unforgettable journey through the stories you love, hate, or maybe just don't understand yet. Check out Wizard and the Bruiser on the last podcast network. It's geek history with extra bits. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. So, I don't know what is worse, honestly. We're just going through the, the, the atrocious crimes of Yosef Mengele, as I've heard several documentaries. <laughs> oh, I don't know uh, if that's right. right. Um, but unfortunately, since the very beginning, and I don't know why this happened, mm-hmm. but in my brain started playing every single time I saw Mengele was this tune. All right, this is the last podcast on the left. I am Ben Kissel with Marcus Parks, with the guy who always has music in his head, Henry Zabrowski, as well. That's a good way of putting it. I'm not a monster. I don't know. I'm not. I wasn't born a monster. So I think I just become like this. On today's episode and the next couple of episodes, we're covering a dude. He is uh, maybe. Uh, perhaps the worst person in the world. One of them, top five. We'll yeah, give him top, top five. five. Top sure. five. Uh, we're going to talk about Joseph Mengele, and um, it is going to be hard to uh, to deal with at some parts. But we're going to get you the information you need to know. Mangala, <laughs> right? The He's cockroach. not a bad person. What? <laughs> Henry. 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 Jesus. We're already off to a very controversial start. Please don't isolate that. And this is like the rock opera. It's a rock opera. I don't want it to be like this. It's I how don't my know. brain copes. It's how my brain does. It allows it to survive. Well, I watched quite a few documentaries, and I understand it is. Difficult to get through. You gotta, you gotta find some coping mechanism because what we're gonna talk about is obviously extremely dark and extremely morbid, and uh, in many ways, of course, in all ways, extremely sad. Mm-hmm. Well, Joseph Mengele, aka the Angel of Death, was a Nazi SS officer who oversaw the cruelest and most useless human experiments in Auschwitz, mm. the most infamous and brutal of all Nazi concentration camps. Mengele was personally responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands, not only through being one of the main selectors who decided who lived and who would be sent immediately to the gas chambers upon the arrival to Auschwitz, but also through the torturing and killing of thousands, mostly children, just to see what would happen. Just to see what would happen. 
it, it that is the element here that is the scariest, of course. And if right. we look at Yosef uh, Mengele, a part. Of, I think this is in a way this is a heavy hitter, but it's yeah. a heavy hitter. It's a serial killer right. who got a job to be a serial killer with a government that is entirely filled with serial killers. So it's that. It's the Mengele is the extension of the long, horrible arm of the Nazis and what it would do to a bunch of innocent people. Right, of course. I mean, it's sad when, uh, obviously, the outcome of, like, what's going to happen, they're going to die. Yeah. I would just like to tell them that so that maybe you don't have to do all of this crap. Well, part of the point was that they would die because part right. of the point, not even part of the point, a lot of times the biggest point was to kill them to see what the experiments had done to their organs and mm. that was why they were so excited uh, to be working in this environment Ugh. because they for the first time in human history were completely unfettered from any sort of morality whatsoever perfect storm and i don't know why this surprised me so much but Mengele was doing all of this starting at the horrifyingly young age of 32 we're going to get into his backstory a little bit here, right? Very much That's so. That's the idea. How, it does seem very bizarre that you would just snap your brain at the age of 32 and decide that this is the the road to go down as a doctor. It's well, not a uh, – it, it is a slow progression, but uh, at the same time, like it, it makes sense and doesn't make sense all at the same time. But we'll get into it. Yeah, you'll see, Kissel. You'll learn how someone can go from being a normal, Hummel-dressed Bavarian youth – uh, to being the angel of death of Auschwitz. I, yeah. I understand. Makes sense, but also doesn't make sense. You know what else doesn't make sense, but also makes sense? Schnitzel. <laughs> What are you talking about? Schnitzel? Schnitzel we, makes nothing no doesn't make sense, sense about schnitzel. No, no, no. I thought it was Kissel, a sausage-based food for until I was about 25, and I'm half German. I Kissel, did not realize it was pounded down. Only the you Germans are could take German. me. There's literally nothing wrong with schnitzel. It's absolutely delicious. It, it is the German version of fucking chicken parmesan. Is it and chicken you, cutlet? You're is, downing this? I, will, I have never been so offended. It really it so makes no upset. sense. It's By a thing that you said. Just call it a chicken cutlet, but what is it? It's not even made of chicken. You know, it's made out of veal, it's which veal. I don't necessarily of eat course. anymore, but at the same time, oh my it's delicious. God. I just realized the schnitzel is the most German thing of all time. It's a yes. baby calf that has been tortured its entire life, and then they beat it, and they pound <laughs> it, and then they deep fry it. Well, Mangala was what you would call the perfect Nazi. He took orders without question. He believed wholeheartedly in the mission of Adolf Hitler. He was a virulent anti-Semite, and all of his tasks were done with a ghoulish, almost unbelievable delight. And that's the thing that sets him apart even from the worst of the worst that he was working with at Auschwitz is the fact that they said he did everything with a smile on his face. If we have to do a, you know, when you like have to uh, name the celebrity by their smile, Mengele's smile versus Ed Gein. Mm. Who's got the more like something's wrong upstairs smile? Well, Ed Gein was kind of just a simple farm boy who got too curious for his own good. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was sick as well. He was very, very sick. Right. Mangala was not sick. Uh, he was sick. The entire fucking, the entire country got sick. That's how right. I sort of view it almost. It was like oh, a yeah, mental sure. fucking illness. The in- Germany went insane yep. for fucking 13 years, and this is what came out of it. Right. Also, uh, Mengele's smile was part of the reason why he was even recognized by some of his workers uh, when he had fled to Argentina. So it's interesting. You brought up his smile, Kissel. Well, Mengele had a, a very distinctive smile because hmm. he had a huge gap between his front teeth. Oh, okay. However... To be the perfect Nazi is to be somewhat dull. 
because Joseph Mengele was a flavorless shell devoid of humanity with all the personality of a reptile. Right. But you'd think, considering what he did, his past would be a nightmare comparable to the worst of serial killers. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, the history of Mengele prior to Auschwitz is not much different than any other SS officer. Jeez. In fact, to this day, we're still not sure what Joseph Mengele's exact motivations were. I think it was Marlboro points. <laughs> well, honestly, man, I know people who literally died of cancer 15 years ago, but they still have an inflatable raft. And that lasts a lifetime. My dad's dream was the canoe, and he couldn't even fit into a goddamn canoe. Marlboro Miles is one of the most, um, one of the worst marketing schemes in the history of marketing. But the fact that Mengele is not much different from any other SS officer is precisely why this is a fascinating story. Because the story of Mengele runs side by side with thousands of other doctors who collectively lost their minds over a period of a few decades. Mm. Now, this is not the story of how Germany came under the spell of Hitler. This is the story of how thousands of doctors took advantage of that spell to commit acts of cruelty beyond what anyone thought possible. It just so happens that Mengele was the worst of them. Honestly, in the middle in the middle of this, I finally did. I it's the first time I went to the doctor in a couple of years, and so I, I went to the doctor. And the whole time, I'm just being like, "Doctors, you can't trust fucking doctors. <laughs> you can't. Oh my god, the way they were pushing that flu vaccine. It does get to a point being like, is the the mark of the beast in that? Is the RFID chip in that? Hey man, I was at my therapist uh, this past week here around t- Thursday or t- whatever, and he just called me fat a bunch. And then he told me I had to go to the doctor. And then it, this is not the time to be talking about that kind of stuff. No, you just, know, your diet is very directly related to mental health. Yeah, I know. That's what he said. <laughs> no, he said my, he's like, your organs might be all messed up. And I'm like, they're fine. I, you know, they're doing. They're all in there. But that's interesting. You say spell. Uh, Joe Mackey is a very funny comedian, but yeah. he talks about Hitler convincing everyone blue eyes and blonde hair is the way to be when he has dark eyes and dark hair. And Mm -hmm. that just shows you the power of this, what was going on there. Yeah. Now, some say that Mengele was driven by pure academic ambition, that he used the human beings sent to Auschwitz to advance his own career using resources, i.e. living human beings, that nobody in history had ever had access to. Others say that Mengele was just playing at being a scientist, that he was a pure psychopath who just enjoyed playing God, cataloging his quote-unquote research and collecting rare specimens, whether it be an interesting gallstone or a whole family of dwarves, just because he could. Kind of sort of like uh, the way Michael Jackson curated his ranch, the Neverland (laughs) Ranch. Yeah, I guess so, in a a way. Michael Jackson just got monkeys. He got the elephant man. Tigers. He he got the elephant man bones. He did buy Joseph Merrick's bones. Yeah. He did. And also, I mean, I'm not going to not say he didn't have a couple of dwarves just (laughs) hanging around, only just so that he could dress them up as children, so that they could could talk to the children and be like, it's not so bad, kid, once you get used to it, there's a (laughs) Oh, my goodness. A union rep, huh? Well, that's that's not good. Things are going the wrong direction there. But whatever Mengele really was, I do think that one of the observations I read during our research is true. In any other time, Mengele would have been nothing more than a slightly sadistic German professor. He wouldn't have been a serial killer. I mean... It's interesting because I think there's a combination to all of this, especially, I mean, this is going to be an ongoing conversation we're going to have as we go through his crimes and and they do the deep dive behind his rise and shit like that. But a part of it is, 
I, I don't even know anymore. Like once you get into his life in Auschwitz, which which I think you put correctly, it's like he came online. As that when he got to Auschwitz, he became the thing that uh, technically fate was bringing him towards to be this monster. But I mean, as, even as a sadistic German professor with the shit that he did, I would not want to be his TA. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea. It would be interesting to know if you went down like the Curtin, Peter Curtin route or something at some point. I don't think Peter so. Did Peter Curtin end up killing people a little bit later in life as well? A little bit, but I, I really don't think that Mangala would have done what... I don't think he would have just kidnapped children off of the street and tried to sew them together to see what would happen. I'm just going to say this right now. I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'm going to do yeah. it. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that like Nazi Germany and particularly Auschwitz activated something in Mengele and hundreds of other SS officers. Mm. But in slight contrast, Mengele was the only one who didn't really seem bothered by the whole operation. I mean, we're going to get into it fully on the second episode, but there isn't going to be any myth-busting here. Auschwitz really does deserve its reputation as the worst place in human history that we know of. of Just thinking about the bunker that Mengele worked out of, which we'll talk about, the idea of, like, we're... Where are there other places in this world where more evil energy is centered besides, I mean, where uh, Unit 731 was started, um, the CeCe's Pizza in Tallahassee? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something about this time period. People were really, uh, I guess, medically curious in all the wrong ways. It is interesting. It's like when you go to, have you ever been to a paper mill town? Yeah, it smells oh, like yeah. farts. It smells, it smells like, like eggs. <laughs> and you go there, and then you look at everyone in the face, and you're like, smells. Like, you just want them to recognize it smells, but they don't know that it smells. And you're like, it definitely smells. There was an article. I forget what book we were going to. I want to say it was when we were doing Mark Twitchell, because they said that one of the other Canadian towns around it was a paper mill. And what they said is that they see it doesn't smell like farts. It smells like money. Yeah. <laughs> That also sounds like the weirdest porn producer in, in L.A. That's not a porn. That is money. He's just him wiping cum off a black couch and eating it. I mean, like, it tastes like money. But a part of it, honestly, but deep within, um, not your ignorant point, Kissel, there is a, um, there is a bit of truth in that, which is the idea of people getting used to something. Of yeah. course. At one point. That's what I'm saying, Henry. Would consider being human. Wow, you're like a Mark Twain. <laughs> Well, the thing about Mengele that really set him apart is that he literally whistled his way through Auschwitz. Like, that was what they said about him, is that he would constantly be whistling either Wagner, of course, uh, or uh, Puccini. That's how people came to dread hearing whistling, because they knew that's when Mengele was coming. Good God. His behavior in Auschwitz was at the same time baffling and completely unknowable. In fact, I would like to quote one of the Jewish doctors who was forced to work in the camp. He said, The professor would like to understand what is not understandable. We ourselves who were there and who have always asked ourselves the question and will ask it until the end of our lives, we will never understand it because it cannot be understood. I've been talking about it with Natalie for the last couple of days, obviously, going through all of this material. Uh, and a part of it is that I feel like the more I read about the Nazis, it, it's true, the less I understand. The mm. more I'm at this sort of uh, very intense t- intersection of just going like, why? Why? Why did it get well, like this? Why it get like this? I mean, you can kind of see. I mean, obviously, there are. I know that there are historical reasons why, and there are the things right. that led up to it. But it's just more of being like, 
wow, they all just really let themselves throw this this id-driven, hate-filled temper tantrum that they were all a part of in one go. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was in Uruguay with my grandmother, I was able to record uh, about seven hours worth of conversations. And we did talk about this stuff. And there is no explanation other than it was it was simply the culture. And they just didn't want to be the ones who were going to be tormented. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be, you know, they knew that they had to be, in order to stay safe, they had safe, they had to go along. And uh, and do these things, and then also you don't have technology, so they didn't know. They knew shit was going on. Yeah, they knew about all of the ghettos and stuff like that. They knew people were being killed. Uh, they knew Jewish businesses were being destroyed. But uh, there was a lot of willful willful ignorance. Yes, when it comes to this stuff. Now, although Mengele's life prior to Auschwitz contains no keys to unlocking the mystery of Mengele, his individual journey, while not as detailed as many of our overviews, is still important to understanding how Germany got to Auschwitz. But before we begin, let's acknowledge our sources. We got Mengele, The Whole Story by Gerald Posner, The Nazi Doctors by Robert J. Lifton, which is uh, dense but fucking fascinating. It's about the psychology of these guys. All right. Uh, you got Auschwitz by uh, Miklos uh, Nyisli. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. I think you uh, nailed it. Without a doubt, <laughs> yeah. that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he was uh, Mengele's assistant and wrote a memoir after being released. Okay, so he uh, got away. Like they're like, oh, you were just the assistant. Like uh, he had no he choice. Was, it's no choice. Okay. He had no choice right. whatsoever. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that were chosen specifically because they were doctors to get pulled out of the lineup in order to help. He right. was a pathologist, so okay. he he worked on dissections. Oh, all right. Um, and uh, we also have to cite uh, the British documentary series Science and the Swastika. I will say, you know what's really relieving in all of this research is that um, unfortunately I, I watch quite a bit of stuff with Wendy uh, uh, and Wendy really does not react well to Hitler's speeches <laughs> I, I, Hitler's speech and I mean it she would literally go like Mah. Like she'd make these like weird noises and stuff, and I'm so glad it wasn't her just like wagging her tail and like doing a little zig heil. so without further ado let's get into the story of Josef Mengele and by extension the story of Auschwitz itself Joseph Mengele was born on March 16, 1911, the first of three sons born to Carl and Walburga Mengele. <laughs> I, I, her hamburgers are horrible. Uh, yep. Worst food we ever had was at the Boston airport at the Walburgers. We got it for free. We got it for it free. It was so bad. It was that bad. But yes, his mother's name was Walburga. <sighs> Which is actually how they pronounce it, the Walbergs. Yeah. Walburga. Well, Walburga. <laughs> Uh, the family were strict Catholics, and Mengele, even when he became a Nazi, and this somewhat sets him apart as well, he still listed himself as Catholic rather than writing the stock Nazi answer of believer in God. God, he's so brave. So, <laughs> so now, brave. Didn't the Nazis, my understanding is they didn't particularly care for the Catholics. Uh, no. Well, the Catholics also uh, somewhat, the, the Catholics let a lot of shit slide. Okay. Yeah, because they also helped a bunch of Nazis get out of Germany to get into South America, which we'll talk about it too. Wait, right. but I, with Josef Mengele, I think it's interesting because we were talking about this before the show and it's true. Every one of the documentarians I saw said the same thing. It's like, Josef Mengele, Handsome, dashing, <laughs> charming, funny with the ladies, sexy, sharp as a tack. You, you had to be. Yeah. The envy of men everywhere. And then I'm looking at Josef Mengele, and I'm like, 
he looks like Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> I was attracted back then. Yeah, I watched a documentary, and the woman, she was a survivor, but she describes him dressed perfect, beautiful shoes, stoic face. I was like, this is the this is a man's a monster. You see that a lot. I mean, it's you, very you, weird. I, I mean, it's because they it want lot. them to look like like hook faced hunchback monsters. Yeah. They yeah. want the you see want... him being like yeah, hello. But then when you meet Joseph Mengele, and he's like, you got some explaining to do, <laughs> right. and everyone just thinks he's funny and cute because he's playing with the fucking bongos and shit. Right. Yeah, yeah. I want R- Richard Chase is as tra- as is as attractive as I want my serial killers to be. <laughs> That's it. You gotta you gotta look weird. Well, I th- yeah, I think Henry makes a very good point is that they do expect them to look the way on the outside that they are on the inside. And when they when that doesn't match up, when those two things don't match up at all, uh, it's jarring and people right. remember it. Like you definitely remember that sort of thing. Right. Now, the Mengele family lived in the Bavarian town of Gunsberg, where they eventually founded a farm equipment company that was so successful that the Mengele's essentially ran the town. I did a bit of a Google street walk of Gunsberg. Oh. I went through, like, I, I looked up, like, the, the town center, and I literally walked through the streets, and it's... Um, uh, very small, very cute. Looks like a little Hummel town. And oh. you know that Gunsberg, um, it's got a thriving downtown shopping area, and it has one of the top <laughs> five Legoland theme parks in Germany. No Th- shit. Things have changed. But again, it is this cute little place that everybody, you know, idyllic. Looks like a fucking postcard that you go visit your opa. You know what I mean? Go skiing on the weekends. But it's like, it's got the type of racism that it's like if you go to a little vacation town where it's like, you know, maybe the KKK is in the forest. But instead of maybe it being the KKK, it's the KKK. But they believe they are descended from the wizards of white people that are from down deep inside the centers of mountains and shit. Right. It's scary. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. of course, they also had Playmobil. Which is a toy very popular in Germany that I played with as a child, and none of my friends would play with me because they're they are very very bland. <laughs> they really are the most bland toys of all time. Well, speaking of the Mengele's farm equipment company, to this day you can actually buy new tractors and plows with the name Mengele. <laughs> plastered on the side. Although the family rebranded themselves as Mengele and Sons in the 80s. The Sons are the problem! What do you mean, Mengele and Sons? How does that make it better? Your oldest son is Joseph Mengele! The other two sons were technically not part of the problem. They just did a lot of like, uh, blah, 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 blah. They were very proud of Then it's Mengele and two-thirds of our sons. I old dang's there. My name is Con Mengele, and people say I'm crazy for slashing the prices on all of these tractors. And then people say I'm crazy for slashing these prices. But I tell you what I'm crazy for. The belief sense of real energy inside of me powers me to overcome to Houston. All right, let's take the ad back. I think we'll get it one more time here. But tellingly, Mengele and Sons has no internet presence whatsoever. There's what? no Mengele.com. So are they still in business? They're the John Deere of yeah. this part of Germany? I only know that they still make Mengele tractors and trailers because I found a used farming equipment site selling a 2009 Mengele Silo Bull 8000 for $28,000. I'm just oh going to say rebrand. <laughs> rebrand it a little bit. But Mengele was known as like, that was the highest quality farm equipment around. Mangala, you're you right. Mangala the was the John Deere. Here. Just call it Johnson's. <laughs> anything. Anything. Whatever. Else. Now, as we said earlier, 
Yosef Mengele's childhood was completely normal, although being the eldest son of the family who ran the whole goddamn town probably had an effect on his sense of superiority. Yeah. Mm, well, yeah. The weirdest thing about his childhood was just that his nickname was Beppo. Uh, Beppo? Beppo. Yeah. Beppo? Beppo. He got cut out of the Stooges. <laughs> what happened? Is he a mime? Yeah, no, there were accidents, but none that would point towards mass murder. No, you just took over Beppo. How the <laughs> hell did you get a nickname Beppo? What do you have to do in elementary school to get nicknamed Beppo? Yosef, the whole story didn't go into why he was called Beppo. It just said that his childhood nickname was Beppo. You just like tiny hats and cigars that blow up? I mean, honestly, if you would be much more excited about the name Beppo if he was a young man trying to get it onto the Notre Dame football team. And he was a rag boy and every but he just felt he could work hard enough yeah. to get on the team. But when it's a the, when one of the orchestrators of the worst uh, crimes against humanity of all time, Beppo takes a different color. Right, absolutely. Yeah, if I remember correctly, Beppo, I think, was Superman's monkey. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, there's Beppo the super monkey, Comet the super horse, Streaky the super cat. <laughs> we get it, Superman. Everything is super. Understood. Thank you. The only kinds of accidents that Yosef Mengele had, because that's what we always look for uh, when we're talking about these psychopaths. We look for childhood uh, incidents, mostly head injuries. Right. Uh, what he had, he almost drowned in a rainwater barrel on one occasion, and he almost died of blood poisoning on another. Rainwater barrel? Yeah. Yeah, you fall headfirst. You're just hanging out in a rainwater barrel? Yeah, kids are playing. You fall headfirst into a rainwater barrel. Next thing you know, you're dead. They live the they live the the fun the quiet lives of white people on top. I guess so. <laughs> now, although you know these are traumatic events, apparently, like childhood blood poisoning, sepsis is one of the worst things kids can go through. Like it definitely results in PTSD for some. Okay. I mean, they don't really seem bad enough to completely flip the switch on compassion nope. so completely so as to explain Joseph Mengele's later actions. Right. Now, Mengele always had an interest in medicine and biology, but his first choice of career was not doctor. Hoping to fill a profession that had no presence in Gunsburg, Mengele originally wanted to be a dentist. Oh, it's so scary. Yeah. So scary. What child grows up in 1920 and is just like, I want to work with teeth. <laughs> like, that is so scary. <laughs> yes, yes, I want to see the talons that come out of the skull. I want to scrape them with my hook. Especially the old school German teeth. Ugh. Just the dirt and the grime. Just, but Mangala's ambition eventually won out, as it was said that he was highly competitive with his two younger brothers. In fact, he once told a friend that he would one day read the name Yosef Mengele and the encyclopedia. Wow. He could have been known as the man who fixed Britain's teeth, or like the dude who figured out you can cap your teeth with gold. But instead, obviously... So he decided instead to study general medicine, emphasizing on anthropology and human genetics, which was a decision that would have an effect on hundreds of thousands of lives. In 1930, Mengele traveled to Munich to begin his studies at Munich University. It just so happened that Munich was exactly where Adolf Hitler was consolidating power for his eventual takeover of the German government. I do believe that Mengele's father was an early supporter of Adolf Hitler and that they had connections because there are pictures of them hanging out up until then. And it mm. seems to be that the Munich connection was a little bit on purpose, that Mengele wanted to go to the center of the action. Right. And so once he got there, because the, the entire town had Hitler fever. 
Hitler oh, fever. Yeah. I mean, well, he was a populist and, uh, you know, grew it. It took a little time. Well, actually, uh, Mengele said that when he first got there in 1930, he was like, I just want to study. I don't want to get at all this political stuff. Hey, Mengele, this is you from the future. You're going to fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, you, you've got some it. explaining to do, future me. <laughs> See, by 1930, the Beer Hall Push, in which Hitler and the earliest Nazis attempted to overthrow the German government, that was eight years in the past. Right. Hitler had already done his time in prison and had become a global figure in the time since with both his highly publicized treason trial and the publication of his manifesto, Mein Kampf. However, Mengele did not immediately join the Nazi party, as he wouldn't become an official party member until 1936. His father, on the other hand, like Henry alluded to, recognized that there was quite a bit of money to be made following this Hitler fellow, so he officially joined the Nazi party in 1931. Carl hmm. Mengele even hosted a Hitler rally, giving a platform for a speech on farming held at the Mengele factory. It's like Iowa. It's like the Iowa <laughs> State <laughs> Fair. Like the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. 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 I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But in a neighboring town, uh, there seems to be a, a young uh, Heinrich Kissel, like a little, wondering <laughs> where Hitler's attention would be on their new Beerstein helmets that they were creating. We have come up with it. No, Mr. Hitler, please come. Please sponsor us. We've come up with a new way of combining... A light beer with a citrus fruit called a <laughs> That is almost impossible to drink. Germans are a cold, mean people in many ways, but you give me a good, fat, drunk German, you're going to have a good time. That's for sure. So did Mengele... Um, because they were in farming equipment, did they get a contract with the government at all? Uh, yep, because Karl Mengele was so cozy with Hitler from the beginning, Mengele and Sons essentially became the official farm equipment of the Third Reich. Ugh. And what this tells us is that Mengele's anti-Semitism didn't just suddenly appear with the Nazi party. And by extension, anti-Semitism was not something that Hitler and the Nazis created in Germany. And this is a, a big part of the whole how did it happen type of conversations. Because I think a lot of people think that before like 1933, there weren't a whole lot of anti-Semites right. in Germany. And all of a sudden Hitler put this big spell on everyone. No, these people were primed and ready. The belief that the Jewish people were less than and deserving of spite already existed within Europe. In fact, when the Nazis invaded Poland, there were plenty of Poles that welcomed them based completely on their anti-Semitic beliefs. They there just, were also plenty of Poles that were very, very surprised to see them coming down the street because, again, they were walking backwards. It's the whole fucking <laughs> oh, thing. There were plenty of Poles that did not enjoy them coming in there because um, they were trying to save the recipe for ice. Can we just how, how many do I have to do? Wow. Well, obviously, he normalized it, right? Yeah. So then they're like, oh, well, now we can express it. It was a slippery slope. Uh, not at all like this analogy I'm about to give, but I do want to say it. They put bread and they put cheese in the crust of pizza. Uh -huh. And now I'm on Instagram and I see they're doing garlic knots. Uh huh. For so the, you're telling for me. the crust. Uh, and so it started Kissel. with cheese, and if I had got, went back in time, and I'm complicit because I worked at Pizza Hut, and I put string cheese in the crust, I wouldn't do it anymore. Right. <laughs> do you see how that this is a modern equivalent to your family? About how you were a part of the industry that normalized this stuff. The family was a part of it, and now you're seeing the horrible fruits that come to bear, and you have to wonder, why did I put so much cheese inside those crusts I back when have. it was illegal? I should have told my 16-year-old self to tell my manager at Pizza 
pizza. This is more immoral and wrong. I saw another pizza that was half a calzone. See, yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same. I think I it's know. a really appropriate metaphor. The more I think about it, the more it makes sense. It is somewhat appropriate, I guess. Yeah, it's about cheese. <laughs> I mean, it, it is about the slow walk. You know, it's about exactly. the slow walk, and it's about how people were primed and ready for this shit. And it was Ugh. just that Hitler came, and the Nazis came, and it normalized it, and it made it okay to be completely open about all right. this shit. Obviously, people have also written books about this shit. There's a lot of information past what we're going into here. We're just trying to get back to the current time period with Mengele and see what the fuck, like, how did all this shit happen? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's plenty of information out there. Oh, yeah. And many of the Nazis, and Mengele especially, eventually came to justify that anti-Semitism with pseudoscience, specifically using the study of what is known as eugenics. Mm. Conceptualized by Charles Darwin's half-cousin in 1883, eugenics is pretty much the selective breeding of the human race in order to produce the so-called highest quality of offspring. Yes. Essentially, it's treating people like animals. It's treating them like breeding stock, and uh, it's breeding stock whether this, that person be Nazi, Slav, Jewish, or somewhere in between. This philosophy is still prevalent today. Lonzo Ball's dad, um, what's his name, LeVar Ball, I think, he literally just talks about breeding the kids like stock. Weird. And oh, he yeah. talks, like, if you read the interviews with him and watch him, he's like, Jesus. And also, Frank Thomas, he's pushing these pills called Nugenics. And every time I see it, they're literally called Nugenics. Weird. And it's, I'm like, that's a little name. creepy. He just didn't know. He just did. He is not looking into the history books to reflect on his new supplement name. <laughs> I know. Big hurt. A little strange, though. Surprisingly, though, Germany was not the first place that eugenics took hold. We here in the United States were actually the first country to put eugenics into practice. USA. <laughs> USA. <laughs> when do we cheer? USA. <laughs> Starting in 1907, we sterilized thousands of criminals, mental patients, and alcoholics all in the name of eugenics. I mean, oh, that that eliminates a couple of us, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? For the alcoholics, I mean, if yeah. you're drunk, be like, I don't got to worry about it anymore. <laughs> no. no, the whole thing began in Indiana, with 29 other states following suit with sterilization programs of their own over the following. 30 to 60 years. Jeez. Eventually, California would lead the way, sterilizing more people than every other state combined. Wow. And Honestly, I can. I don't want to malign. Again, I said the word malign, have a drink. Um, <laughs> they are weak people. <laughs> well, I will you know, say you the one California. thing California <laughs> definitely propagates is the use of tight pants. So I feel like that could be it. That's a part of it. It continues to this day. Maybe Where now I'm, tr I'm trying to go more athleisure. I'm trying to wear softer pants so my sperm can get bigger and thicker. Oh, nice. is that what you're working on right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Oh, man, I wear briefs every day and I wear like thick pants. My sperm a-okay. That's great. I just <laughs> wrapped rubber bottom. We got, got them tested. They are swimming. You got them tested? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you taking ACT or SAT? You give them a little pencil? He ran them through the... They ran him through the sprint competition that like they do with the NFL at the beginning of the like the training camp. Just him coming on a fucking, the, the front of a big marathon. Just a bunch of people throwing ones down, betting on him. And this eugenics thing, it was not just a far right-wing belief. Although it was first embraced totally in 1894 by something called the Immigration Restriction League, which sought to prevent the dilution of American racial stock. Hmm. 
But everyone from the Rockefellers to W.E.B. Dubois to the founder of the NAACP held eugenic beliefs to some degree. Hell, even J.H. Kellogg, the breakfast cereal guy that was obsessed with masturbation, he was fully behind eugenics. What are you talking about? Me from college? That was me. <laughs> really? The breakfast cereal guy obsessed with mas- masturbation? Yeah. That's what you were known <laughs> That's as? That's me. The That's Kellogg's me. guy is obsessed with masturbation? Oh, yeah. Dude, the Kellogg, J.H. Kellogg has a hell of a history. Really? Yeah, part of this whole thing is like, yeah, eat cornflakes so you won't masturbate so much. So you won't masturbate? Yeah. I don't know. I guess... I'll tell you what. They seem to pair really well like a red wine and a steak. <laughs> <laughs> But in Nazi culture, eugenics had an extra kick. Always, man. The so-called science was paired with the Nazis' occult beliefs, Mm. particularly those put forth by Madame Helena Blavatsky, who is probably second only to Aleister Crowley when it comes to mentions on this show. Right. This This is important to remember, is that a bunch of silly shit led... To the worst crimes right. in humankind. Like, we'll go, we'll go into it right now, Marcus. You do the dance. Yeah. I mean, to give a refresher, like, Madame Blavatsky wrote in her 1888 book, The Secret Doctrine, about the seven root races of mankind. Among them were the Hyperboreans, the Lemurians. You remember we did a whole yes. episode on the Lemurians? I, I remember this, episode. yes. A whole episode on that goofy <laughs> bullshit. Ugh. And the Atlanteans, like from Atlantis, Atlanteans. Guilty and space Jews. Got- but we didn't, he doesn't go into the space Jews into this one. There are other <laughs> right. people that leapfrog from Blavatsky to space Jews, but they decided to leave them out of the conversation for yeah. Nazi purposes. That's right. And that's Madame Bl- Blavatsky saying that word, mm. those words together, not Henry. No, it is Henry. It's Henry. Oh. I mean, it's the way I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I see. I can't go into the whole, like, going through the tetrahedron stone, d- different time portals and how they've been here since the beginning of creation. I can't get into that speech because this isn't a bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, the race of hope, though, according to Blavatsky were the Aryans. Mm. And you can go listen to our Nazi occult series for a full breakdown of just how goofy all the Nazi beliefs really were. I mean, that's what it is here. The Aryans, all of this Nazi, it was paired with Atlantis and all kinds of other stupid, goofy bullshit. Mm. Well, now we're getting excessive with the call in Atlantis stupid because it actually sounds really nice. (laughs) It is like, so. I mean, this is nerd culture taken to the extreme. It's what we talked about. about. We talked about in the occult episode, the Nazi occult episode, is that these are white people nerds. That's what they were nerds about. And don't you ever, if you ruin Thor for me, I'm going to be really pissed off. They already did. They already fucking did. I know, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's they they if you if it has a white person in it, it's been ruined. Ah. Yeah, anything with runes, yeah. runes have been ruined <laughs> by these fucking people. But those beliefs had very real consequences, and it was the doctors, the actual scientists, who truly applied the beliefs of the Nazis to horrific purpose. They were the ones who brought it into the real world, whether they believed in all the Atlantis bullshit or not. Right. In fact, as Robert J. Lifton wrote in The Nazi Doctors, again, highly recommended, it was partly this romanticism that attracted eugenicists to national socialism. See, according to Hitler and Mein Kampf, this was a marathon, not a sprint. The doctors who were to participate in the Nazi eugenics programs were going to be the creators of the Nazi race. And this project was estimated to take up to 600 years to fully realize. So this was an almost mythical effort. Now, you could see Mm. the way they sold it, right? 
because how exciting would it be to be a part of a 600-year program that would slowly allow its tentacles to take over the entire world? And not only are you, you are engineering the people that are going to be those tentacles, the people that are going to take over everything, but they look just like you yep. they're just like you right. you are the perfect example of them you have become god you're building them in your image and and i this is a part of what i think is interesting and i, I think it's a question we'll bring up again obviously in the second episode but i i think that them applying science to it in a way right in the beginning it was them prepping to win the whole thing yeah right is that it was prepping like this is before world war ii but they knew that they were going to be making some move at some point right and so it's almost like they were building the case then to show that when they won they can be like look we were right this is all our science to show we were right. right this is the validation behind all of it because for some reason deep in our german brain we need all of fucking the facts to match up to show that we can do these fucking horrible things in the name of science. They need the documents. Can you imagine if they came back and saw the Hitler youth of today looking like Target employees out of the job? <laughs> they would Just never be like, can you cut it? Those never. fucking piece of shit alt-right people who want to talk. Hitler, you would be the first against the fucking wall. <laughs> <laughs> but about these doctors, on the other hand... One thing I read again and again was that many of these scientists were not really Nazis in the sense that, say, like Heinrich Himmler was a Nazi. Like full he on. was a he was like a capital N A Z I Nazi. Yeah, like full on Thule Society Nazi. Right. It was just that the Nazis allowed these guys to believe and do reprehensible shit. So therefore, they became Nazis. Right. They also a lot of times didn't have a choice and then they didn't have a choice and then it was either one it's either well we either make a bunch of money and get really popular and become a part of the top of the social hierarchy within germany number one you also get uh total access you're treated like a rock star you just so it's either that or i get beat to death by a group of nazis in the street what do i choose Oh, I choose the path of least resistance. And the thing was that it was the scientists who made the Nazis legitimate. In fact, Hitler said that the medical profession was more important to the Nazi regime than any other. I mean, goofy occult belief was one thing, but if you had a doctor delivering it folded into science, then it held more weight. And these, I mean, as opposed to a lot of people on the right now who don't believe in science at all. Yeah, I mean, these guys were like, and Hitler's like, Science is essential to all of this. This right. cannot happen because, you know, Hitler got all of his stupid beliefs from, you know, Madame Helena Blavatsky, a right. magazine called, what was it called? Estora or something like that. Yes. Like that's it was right. coming from all these like goofy fucking places. But Hitler knew it's like, if we want people to really believe this shit, uh, we have to deliver it in science. And they right. delivered it, I mean, in the propaganda films just like came out over and over again pamphlets, leaflets, all kinds of shit. And they, packaged all of it in what was seemingly a rational way. You can almost see an inner insecurity of the valid the validity of their own ideas where Hitler knew also in the only way to pro- because that's what he w- he was saying, right? Is that he believed, oh, this gives it validity. We're going to show the whole world how powerful the Aryan race is, but he also knows that the idea is going to be so unpopular. There's like there's a I think in the beginning it's almost like people will give in to the power of our race, but eventually realize me like no, not only do I have to eradicate 
everybody else in order for this idea to work is that I have to even create within the quote-unquote Aryan race a more pure, rarefied strain of the Aryan race using science. And that basically he's like, we have to reboot the entire world in my vision in order for it to even work because there it would splinter apart. So essentially because people have minds and they're going to understand that they are eventually people will resist this this concept, eventually people are going to be upset about what's happening, is that in order to gain total control, he has to rebuild the whole world from the DNA up. And these doctors, they were all in when it came to the Nazi ideologies. I mean, particularly when it came to the SS. Now, for those of you who don't know, the SS were the most ardent of Hitler's Nazis. They were the true believers who enforced his racial policies in Germany and the occupied countries, in addition to being the fiercest of his soldiers on the battlefield and, worst of all, the ones who ran the concentration camps. These people are Freaking terrifying. When you watch the footage, they are so scary. And one of the most surprising things that I learned during our research on this series was that the largest group of professionals within the SS was by far doctors. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is more anti-doctor talk. It's getting, it <laughs> just gets worse and worse. I'm already scared of the doctor, man. I was scared when I went yesterday, and I went to a really nice place in Burbank. Really? <laughs> they might, I wonder if your doctor I wonder if your doctor treats Jay Leno. No. <laughs> Maybe he does. Do you were the same doctor as Jay Leno? Was there a nice car outside? Have he seen, does he, do you know Jay Leno? <laughs> no, with Jay Leno's, Jay Leno's doctor also has to be vintage, so it's his doctor and his barber, and he treats everything by having. Him drink <laughs> but years before the rise of the SS came to pass, the Nazis were getting inspired by all the eugenics programs going on in America, and they decided that it was time for them to implement their own version. Oh, man, why and, didn't they just, like, try to take our First Amendment, yeah, take, our, yeah, take, take our Constitution? How yeah. about jazz? <laughs> jazz, take jazz! Yeah. In fact, the Nazis often cited a study based on the California sterilization program to justify their own policies. The Rockefellers even helped fund German eugenics programs, including one that employed none other than Joseph Mengele. We'll get into the Rockefellers one day. We will do the Rockefellers. Yep. Again, I keep promoting this. I promoted it on side stories about how last podcast is going to go out on, on Marcus's and I fucking 25 hour long Illuminati <laughs> breakdown. I will say, uh, if you want to see Rockefeller's grave, it's in Sleepy Hollow, hmm. where of course the tale of the Headless Horseman is uh, very famous. Beautiful graveyard. Old yeah. school's tombstones. But outside of Rockefeller, I, uh, he has this huge, it's not, it's like a it's a tomb. Yeah. You know, it's massive. And I'm screaming at it. Like, <laughs> off. And then this group of kids walk by with their parents. And their parents looked at me like I had two heads. And I'm like, he's a criminal what are you yelling at me for and then Brooke well, is also, like we gotta go it's and then- you with a fucking Michael Myers shirt on and, and yeah. basketball shorts with two tall boys and either hands screaming crimes against humanity they are crimes, crimes against, against humanity, humanity. No. talk about the federal banking system I mean come on now the Nazis didn't go from zero to holocaust Although, I mean that is not terrible, a measure terrible part of the Fast and Furious franchise <laughs> Although the time frame in which they went from admiring the American eugenics programs to gassing millions was still alarmingly fast. (sighs) 
All the Nazis needed to do it the way they wanted to do it was to have the right people in power in all the right places. Right. So when the Nazis took control of the government in 1933, they set their sights on the universities. Their first order of business when it came to that was to ban all Jewish people from teaching or working at schools, universities, and state-run hospitals. To give you an idea of the impact of this, at Berlin University alone, that action opened up 42% of the staff positions. Wow. So so suddenly, all these non-Jewish physicians and soldiers who were out of work, they suddenly had jobs, and it was all due to Nazi policies. Wow. All these guys had to do was sell their soul to get those jobs. It's like fucked up that it's still about job creation. Like It's, it's still about, about that. job creation. And they, they used that in a way that it's like, I mean, the Nazis at this point, did they have like total control at this point in 1933? 19, 1933, Hitler was chancellor. They had complete and total control over everything. Besides small pockets of resistance here and there, people right. who were doing what they could do, because it's not like the entire town, uh, the entire country of Germany suddenly became Nazis. I mean, no. that's that's the the old adage is that the first country that the Nazis occupied was Germany. There yeah. were a lot of people in Germany that were not okay with what was Absolutely. going on. Absolutely. And now, for some reason, I just as a cathartic. Um, act uh, activity. I need to play Wolfenstein again. I just, <laughs> oh, this is what I've been thinking about so this whole good. time. I bought a PS4, literally shipped to my house to get Wolfenstein <laughs> because <laughs> nothing makes me fucking thirstier than fucking shooting oh, up a bunch of Nazis. They're so <sighs> fun. That's why I couldn't play Call of Duty: Modern Warfare. It's about the uh, it's about the Iraq War, and I'm like, I, this is not justified. No. And I'm screaming at the screen, <laughs> and then I'm like, no, this is a video game. Like, it's, like, it's not a justified war, sir. No, dude, I'm gonna be fucking. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm gonna be uh, playing some fucking Wolfenstein this week. <laughs> One of the best games ever. Oh, it's gonna be so all three cool. of them. Yeah, all three of them are fucking great. But on the other hand, there were quite a few of these doctors who already had a belief in anti-Semitic eugenics when they stepped into the jobs vacated by the Jewish men and women who were pushed out. Hmm. One of those, of course, was Yosef Mengele. He was an ardent believer in the quote lives unworthy of living belief Ugh. that was gaining power. Jeez. This is a that term is big huge early uh nazi thought the lives unworthy of living and another term that haunts me which is the term useless eaters Mm. useless eaters i didn't hear that before it it is yeah that that is a a very real nazi term it's bone chilling oh god Uh, this belief pushed by dr ernst ruden whose lectures mengele regularly attended was that doctors should be in charge of destroying what they called life devoid of value, starting with sterilization. Among those who were offered up for this program were schizophrenics, epileptics, the hereditarily blind and deaf, the physically deformed, manic depressives, and alcoholics, meaning all three of us here. All of us getting sterilized. Which Jesus one am Christ. I? Uh, alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Alcoholic. I'm a fun. I'm a Wisconsinite. Oh, you two guys get sterilized for alcoholism. I get sterilized for manic depressiveness. What? Well, if you had beer, you won't be manic depressive. According to science, I've collect, I've counted my drinks and I looked at it. I am a moderate drinker. I'm a moderate drinker for my size and my region. You know what? Also, because they're regularly going to lectures where people like Ernst Rudin are doing these speeches where they're showing footage of cancer cells uh, being uh, destroyed by antibodies. And basically, they were like, with the antibodies, they would have little, like, swastikas on them. And then the cancer cells would be labeled Jews 
the thing. So like they had already oh. this thing was like so deep inside, and so it starts with the slow rollout of being like we're going to do these people that are very sick and hard, quote unquote, hard on society. The 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 deformed, the the, the people born handicapped, and we're going to get rid of them first in order to cleanse the bloodline. Mm-hmm. Right. And they right. actually had full uh, schools dedicated to this stuff. They had these isolated schools that they would send all of uh, the doctors and nurses and everybody. They would send them out to these isolated places uh, and they would teach eugenics there. And the chilling thing about that is that they would release uh, a journal every single year right. uh, about what they talked about, what they were doing until 1937 and then starting in 1937 they didn't tell anybody what they talked about all they did was say we had a conference here they would not say anything because that was when they were really starting to do the horrible shit and of course they also made a lot of money off of super beats infomercials Uh, evidently, I don't know if you know this, Henry, beets are the world's greatest food. Superfood. Superfood. <laughs> Wait, so as long as they don't start calling it the Uber food, then we're yeah. fine. Now, it was a very short jump from the sterilization of these types of people to their full-on murder. What Robert J. Lifton calls the Nazification of medicine. See, the goalpost oh. of the Hippocratic Oath, i.e., do no harm, all doctors take it, Right. goalposts got moved by the Nazis. It was no longer a concept of one-on-one healing between a doctor and patient. It was now an oath that applied to the bigger picture, the greater good, with one doctor describing it as cutting out the festering appendix of the world. So do, do therapists take that oath too? The Hippocratic Oath? I don't think so. I think psycho- no. psychologists do. The ones that give you medicine, they take Oh, it. I'm going to a psychologist. Oh, yeah, he takes it. Yeah, he takes well, it. Well, he yeah, called he takes me it. fat. He's technically <laughs> so trying to help you. Did he call you fat or he did he- called me fat. Did he say, Ben Kissel, you are a fat, fat boy? He said, Ben, I don't know how else to say this. You're fat. No, he said no. I was overweight. He used the word overweight. <laughs> okay, he, he, used the word he tried to criticize Puffin. No, <laughs> he was doing a Dr. Phil. He was doing a Dr. Phil tough love. That's all that was. Technically, that is what he's trying to do. Yeah. Well, I think it, I'm going to tell him he just violated the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I am. Yes, fucking does. This is going to be He's rough. He's going to get a next okay. session, man. He's going to get an email from me. <laughs> I promise you that. Well, in the middle of all this shit, Josef Mengele was rising in the ranks. He had become a full Nazi in 1937, and that same year, he joined the Third Reich Institute for Hereditary Biology and Racial Purity at the University of Frankfurt. Oh, I think it God. speaks a lot that in this changing temperament, that's when he's crushing it. Yeah. Right? right. It's There's something about how, like, somebody, there are time periods for specific people, and Mengele saw the gap for himself. Like, he saw this spot being like, I fit in perfectly right there. And it's like, that's not a good place to be. No. That's not no. a good space. Me, it's like, I see myself... 1920s jazz period in America, having fun, having an absinthe <laughs> cocktail, fancy hat on. Also, I like the Dada period of France where people are like doing weird sketch comedy with like dick masks on and stuff. That's fun. <laughs> I cannot imagine Third Reich, that's literally called Third Reich University. Thir- Third Reich Institute for Hereditary Biology and Racial Purity. That was where Mengele would meet the man who would change the course of both his life and the lives of thousands of others. That was where Mengele met Professor Atma Freiherr von Verschur. 
Professor Ottmar Freiherr von Verschur was a huge supporter of Hitler, praising him as being, quote, the first statesman to recognize hereditary biological and race hygiene. And his way of contributing to the cause was through the research of twins. The thought was that by studying the phenomenon of twins, one could unlock the secrets of birth and hereditary function, and the creation of the master race would therefore be easier and more fruitful. Now, didn't he also... Mm. Now, wasn't he also obsessed with twins because you had a built-in control group? It seems he, it's almost out of right. weird, like weird scientific laziness where what's great about especially identical twins Mm -hmm. for them is that they have the same sets of stuff and it's supposed to be vaguely identical so you can experiment on one and then have a control one to compare it to at all times yep that was part of it yeah but uh, a lot of it was them trying to unlock the secret of twins like they were having many of them yeah and having quite a few of them yeah and it it is impossible for one twin to be strong and muscular and the other twin to be danny devito (laughs) Uh, it's an inaccurate film, that's for sure. But if you want to see a great twins movie, uh, Risky Business. That's a good one, yeah. That's a great one. <laughs> it is. is. They're going to strip mine Jupiter Hollow. I want to put the, all of the fucking, all of the references of this show, of like all of the books, and then just Risky Business. Like, that's pretty much essential viewing for this episode. <laughs> it is. Now, it cannot be understated how important the research of Professor Ottmar Freiherr von Verschur was when it came to influencing Mengele. In fact, it could be said that Mengele, once he was in Auschwitz, was Professor Ottmar Freiherr von Verschur's proxy. Mm. It isn't an overstatement to say that the place where these two met was the absolute epicenter of Nazi scientific thinking. This was the orchard where the bitter fruit of the human experiments done in concentration camps was grown. This is where to, it all so came from. Was Mengel- but to them, they're acting like they're fucking Steve Jobs and fucking Wozniak yes. in a garage, and it was this incredible place of inspiration. That they get final, fr- they get all of this freedom. They get to sit here and they get to talk about these ideas that before they had to. They had to hide from the world because people didn't understand them, and now they finally can openly discuss what they've been talking about in private right. for many years. Mm-hmm. Right. So was Mengele at this point, was he like a really good student? Yeah. I mean, well, yes. they said he was pretty good. Like, he yeah. wasn't extraordinary, okay. but uh, he had he had good grades. He was about, I think at this time, like 26, okay. 27, somewhere around there. He was just highly ambitious. Yes. And he knew what he had to do. The whole As soon as he saw it, he saw the the track of where you put yourself to be on top right. of the Nazi party. Like, so, he, he wanted to be famous. This whole thing is is about, he's fucking Cardi B. Right. It so wasn't it just fame that he wanted. He wanted notoriety. He wanted, because, because Cardi right. B's not going to be in the encyclopedia, but Josef Mengele is. So he wanted speak to be so huge. soon. We don't speak so soon. We could have a congresswoman, Cardi B, at some point. Who knows? I saw that video that she did. She she is very passionate. She's definitely screaming at a camera. I love it. (laughs) So it's literally like going back to Animal House. It's like if the whole movie was from the side of Needlemire. And then you just, and and you're against the boys in the Animal House. Pretty much, yeah. And Mangala, the whole time he was there, he was taken in every bit of it. One historian said that Mangala, at this time, became the incarnation of Nazism in its extreme. But that status was almost never reached, as Mengele's own personal tastes came into question in 1939. 
That was the year that he met and married his wife, Irene. So by this time, marriage had become quite the stringent process in Germany, particularly amongst members of the SS. In the two years since Mengele had joined the Nazi party, he'd not only become a full SS member, but he had made it to the elite, the Waffen-SS. The Waffen-SS? Yeah, the Waffen-SS, they were the armed leg of the SS. They are the ones that had the guns, and also, they loved sweet breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. I don't quite see the attraction here of Irene. I don't know why Irene would like Joseph. I don't know. And of course... When Yosef joined the SS, that came with racial purity tests, which Mengele passed, but his wife was a different story. When they married, Mengele was required to submit Irene's family history to the Central Office for Race and Resettlement to ensure that there was no trace of Jewish blood in her family. The titles of these um, bureaucratic institutions are bone-chilling. Yeah. They're so horrible. The Central Office of Race and Resettlement? (laughs) Can you imagine getting a letter from the Central Office for Race and Resettlement? They use this. This is what they used in order to sound official. It's what Scientology does. It's what exactly. any fucking cult I was thinking cult Scientology, does. too, yeah. It's, it's what any cult does, is they put a fucking fancy name on it in order for it to sound legit. Because the part of it, this all came from the Nuremberg Laws. He, this shit had been kind of, had been certain getting baked in. And they, it had a, and it was fucking intense. Like, you had to go through each one. And, and it had a whole, we're going to see this when we go through Auschwitz, too. The, the way that they do the organizational part of Auschwitz and all the number crunching and all the fucking, like, essentially Excel sheets right. that are, are thou- hundreds of thousands and millions of people dying. But the way they organize it, they put it in this way that be like, oh, you see, it's completely legit because right. it's a graph, because it's got a bunch of, like, numbers and shit on it and it looks official. Yeah, it's the right. medicalization of it all. It's the organization of it all. Uh, there, There is a reason why they went from just shooting people and throwing them in a ditch to uh, the full medicalized or quote-unquote medicalized process, uh, the way they justified it as medicalized mm-hmm. in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go, and you have to present your papers, and it's literally a person going like, okay, let's look at your grandfather. Okay, his favorite condiment was mayonnaise. So yes, he's Aryan. <laughs> and since your great-grandfather on your mother's side, his favorite instrument was the clarinet. Hmm, I don't think I could go any way. Let's take a look at some of these pictures. Cargo shorts. He is of the Aryan race. Congratulations. Welcome to the Cessus. All the mayonnaise you can eat. I mean, the hitch that Irene ran into was that there were no papers attached to her great-grandfather, who was an American diplomat named Harry Lyons Dumbler. And since there was no proof that he was her great-grandfather, she just she just said, like, yeah, my great-grandfather, he was an American diplomat. That's all we know about him. Right. The Nazis assumed, eh, he's probably Jewish, right? You're well, lying what? about this, right? So if we, since we don't know, it was like if you didn't know, they couldn't believe that someone wouldn't know who their great-grandfather Her was. Her great-grandfather? So yeah, so like we can't believe you wouldn't know that, so you're probably hiding something from us. You're probably hiding the fact that he's Jewish. But after— Talk about bureaucratic— on top of bureaucratic. Yeah. It is, it is that shit. It's Deadly. Pa- it's papers, papers, papers. So all your fucking bullshit. Crazy. Deadly bureaucracy. That's what this is. This is life or death bureaucracy. But 
after showing photographs of her and her ancestors, plus having friends testify to her, quote-unquote, very Nordic ways, <laughs> what does the Nazis mean? finally approved. I look, thrash look, metal. you see, I the Snowve, I'm not Nordic. I came in skis. <laughs> I do not even wear shoes. <laughs> My favorite flower is the cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> But since they were not able to prove that she had pure Aryan blood by their standards, the Mangala family was left out of the Sippin book. They were they weren't in the Sippin book, huh? No. Nope. <laughs> now what is that like a song? You've been, honestly? What is the that? The Sippin book was like that was a get, man. That was a yeah. big get for Nazis. Yeah. What the, the hell is the Sippin book? The Sippin book was essentially a catalog of all the quote unquote racially clean SS families. So there's just pictures of them. And it's just like this person is in the Sippin. Heinrich Himmler's in the Sippin book. You want to be in the Sippin book? You I guess. Be, well, if you, you want to get in there, if you're not in the Sippin book, you don't get the Sippin book merch. This is all about fucking merch. <laughs> These goddamn nerds and their merch. There this was is... so much. Don't you even be, don't you uh, dare rail against merch because we have the detective popcorn question <laughs> that's still available for sale in our live show. Our live <laughs> taping of our uh, our live show in Chicago is only six dollars and sixty six cents. www.lastpodcastlive.com. Uh, but that yeah. is incredible. Yeah, they had sipping book merch. The sipping book merch is that every time a pure child was born, Heinrich Himmler would send you some swords and some silver spoons yeah dude and but you'd get them from himmler himmler you'd get them from the guy yeah the guy oh the architect God. of the holocaust that's who you got Jesus. this from yeah that's so they're all part of the club they're all a part of the club wow. yeah but at the same time that mengele was trying to prove his wife's racial purity the mass murder had already begun and the very first person who had been killed in nazi germany as a part of these programs was an infant born to an SS couple. This child had been born at home without arms or legs. So when the child was born, the SS father immediately took the baby, dropped it off at the Leipzig clinic, and told him that under no circumstances would the family take it back. They just forgot about it. Just like, just take it. I don't care. Yep, because the wife screamed. She screamed. When they pulled the baby out, she screamed. Get this out of here. Mm. And then the husband took it to the hospital and he said, we're not taking this. Yeah. You oh. need to take this. Like it's a fu- like he bought a fucking set of headphones that didn't work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, while Hitler did not give the original order to kill the child, he told the doctor in charge of the program, whatever happens to the baby, it's not going to be brought in front of the courts. So do whatever you want. So he, he just gave permission. And yeah. so and that's how it began. It all began with that one baby. So over the next few years, a program began in which somewhere between 80 and 100,000 disabled persons and mental patients were murdered by the Nazis. It all began with oral poisons and lethal injections, but as the victims became more numerous, the killing needed to be streamlined. And this was how the Nazi gas chambers came into being with the mental patients and the disabled people. Uh, If you want to really creep yourself out... Watch some of the propaganda videos at the time selling this to the German people. Yeah. And it shows pictures of being like, because the way they put it at this point was this kind of sympathetic angle of 
look at these people. They they will never live a whole lives and would show people uh, of various level of handicap. And it's like, we are we want the German people to be happy and healthy. And it shows just like smiling blonde girls, zig heiling, throwing medicine balls back and forth. They're like, and like a nine-year-old boy drinking a beer. He's like, like good, healthy SS child. <laughs> and they're all these doing like calisthenics in a field. Like, oh, that's what you want. Right. All these able-bodied dudes that all technically look like Captain in America. See, the gas chambers, they didn't or originate in the concentration camps. That was just where they were perfected. Originally, the gas chambers were built in six isolated mental hospitals around Germany, and the patients would be killed en masse using carbon monoxide. Mm. Then a letter would be sent to the family with a false cause of death. They're like, yeah, just make make up whatever you want. Just tell them uh, they died from appendis- appendicitis. But the thing is, is that a lot of people were noticing, like, he died of appendicitis. He had an appendectomy when he was 10. There's no way he could have died of appendicitis. But a lot of people were like, oh, okay, so he's dead now? Uh, all right, so whatever. The families, they, so the families didn't know, know they did that not they were know, sending no. their children no. to die? They did not. This, no, they were just like, oh, they died. I'm sorry. This is my question, and this is going to come up again in Auschwitz too. And I feel like it's the contradictory nature of... Of the fascist mind. I don't, I don't know how this is. Obviously, I'm not a fucking uh, anthropologist or a historian, so I don't fucking know. But I think it's it's interesting, the fact that they went to all of these pains to validate their views, right? They went to all of these pains to say that science is the reason why. And later on, we have all these breakdowns of why we're doing this. It's all completely backed up. But then they do shit like this where they lie to the people about the cause of death. Where just and the same thing when they covered up for after Auschwitz and when they do all so we'll get into that in detail in the second episode. But it's it's like why aren't you just proud of it? You are doing you are doing your duty to Germany. Mm. Why don't you just say the full facts of what went down instead of lying about it and hiding? You're secretly ashamed of what you're doing and you don't want them to know. And you're you're doing all of these distancing things. You know what it could be is uh, I mean how it kind of makes me think of uh, something that you said, Darren. Uh, I think the uh, Peter Curtin episodes talking about like the mind of a psychopath, and this is like a psychopathic society. You know, talking about Peter. Curtin curtain how he was dealing with his wife and uh talking about like when he confessed to her like his thought was you're not going to be a fucking bummer about this right and yeah. that's what it is is that mm. it's not that they think they're wrong it's like oh, these people are going to be fu- uh, uh, mental patients like they're and, gonna yeah. they're gonna oh they're gonna fuck because they're fucking psychopaths because they don't think about it they're like oh, everyone's gonna be upset about it so we'd better keep it a secret from it them. also kind of um uh cleanses the the guilt of the parents, yeah. you know, because then Maybe. they can say, oh, no, it was it was natural mm-hmm. causes or something. They had a preternatural understanding of how to keep people psychologically in line. Yeah. Now, amidst all this horror, it must be said that there was a resistance. There was quite a few resistance groups all over Germany. And the resistance group that was in the medical community was the White Rose. Yeah, there were a bunch of students at the University of Munich, and they would distribute leaflets and do graffiti, denouncing these practices and calling for the overthrow of Hitler. Now, although, shit, like, you know, distributing leaflets and doing graffiti, it doesn't sound like a whole bunch, Mm. but these people were taking their lives into their own hands. High stakes. Like, huge, huge stakes. These were extremely brave people. And as a consequence of their actions, they were rooted out and condemned by a Nazi people's court to death 
and were beheaded by guillotine. Only one survived. There was a woman uh, survived, uh, managed to make it uh, and keep herself alive in prison until the allies came and rescued her. Wow. But all these people went to their deaths with courage, with one shouting right before the blade came down, Es liebe die Freiheit! Long live freedom. Hell yeah. Wow. Okay, brave hero. Yeah, these people were fucking awesome. Like, the White Rose, I want to get into it, and I would love to do a series on just, like, resistance groups in these uh, oppressed communities, because, like, resistance fighters are among the most badass fucking people in history. These guys are fucking great. However... This was years after the programs were first put into place. This was 1942. These programs were first put into place in the late 30s. The name given to the euthanasia program after the war was Action T4, named after the street address of the agency that was in charge of making sure these guys got paid. They had pay stubs for doing this shit. And that's one of the most mind-boggling things about all this. I mean, the guys who were doing all this shit, authorizing it, carrying it out— they were collecting paychecks. And for some reason, I don't know why, but that mundane detail, that's what makes all this shit real for me. Yeah. Is that they were collecting paychecks. It, Again, it makes it, was it built completely in, real. It was built into society and not yeah. to steal from Dan Carlin. The fucking carrots and sticks of this whole thing benefited towards the psychopath. Absolutely. It, it made you want to do it. It made you were you were ready to join the cause. And Mengala was in the center of all this and he was fucking killing it. He yeah. was killing it. He was yeah. he was making the right friends. He was writing the right reports. There was a part of when you go through it's like he would kind of he developed this kind of concept. He wrote a paper on these because this is also before DNA was discovered, right? So yeah. these guys are doing genetics research, but they're doing it like they're they're fucking butchering a cow. Right. But the, the way they're looking at shit, it's stuff like Bengala wrote a paper about how you can tell the difference between peoples by the folds of their ears in comparison to their chin folds. And I was like, well, some my folds and my chin don't look like my ears because if they did, I would I would look like a fucking wrestler, like a college wrestler. Ooh, <laughs> but it's a, that kind of bullshit. But it, part of it is ancient, this ancient science that they're kind of attached to. And then Mengele would also go for and uh, do these sort of pr- pr- criticize other articles for not saying, like in open papers, he would criticize other articles talking about features of the Aryan race for not at first denoting the fact that the Aryan race was superior to the other races. He kind of like built that into slowly but surely realizing, oh, the political fashionable thing is to make sure you always ping Aryans are the best though. And here's everything else. That was always their baseline. And I think that's important to remember. The baseline of all of their research was always like, it's a given that the Aryans are superior. Why are they superior? Because we said so. Right. Because right. We, look at us. We are obviously superior. So it's like that is that is the baseline of all Nazi research. Yeah, just cut to Augustus Gloop knee deep in a chocolate pie. <laughs> oh, oh, I am stuck in the pipe. Oh, <laughs> someone grab my team. Could someone please grab my feet? I'm stuck in... Oh, 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 too ticklish. <laughs> well, in October of 19... 19- 1939, Hitler signed a note authorizing euthanasia officially. By that time, the German people's attention was focused elsewhere. 
as a month before Hitler had invaded Poland, officially kicking off World War II. And this was just five weeks after Josef Mengele's wedding. And Mengele wanted to jump right into the action, but it would be a further two years before he'd see combat. In 1941, he was sent to Ukraine, where he was awarded the Iron Cross second class within days. Part of his job was he was on the front lines, right? And he was also joined, he was in the Waffen SS, so they went right, the Waffen, he was in the Waffen. And so when he went, they went right into the shit first. Like, they were in Russia. They were deep, deep in Ukraine and Russia fighting real hard, and his job was to go and save people. Like, that's kind of because he was a medic. He was a medic, And so what he would do is, but a part of what they talked early on into his army career was that so like Mengele always had an eye for who should be left behind and who should live. And you're mm. just like, Jesus Christ, it yeah. started even then. Where you'd be like, this guy's too far. Goodbye. You are the weakest link. And then he'd leave. <laughs> right. Oh. Absolutely horrifying to have that man be the one who is responsible for saving people's lives. It's very ironic. Yeah. Well, after that, he was shipped to Berlin and worked actively in Heinrich Himmler's race and resettlement office. It was here in 1942 that Josef Mengele was most likely entrusted with the secret of the final solution. Mm. See, even though Hitler had given the order to enact the final solution in the summer of 1941, the concentration camps had been around and in use since the very beginning of Hitler's rise to power in 1933. Overseen by nerdy chicken farmer and SS leader Heinrich Himmler, the concentration camps originally held political prisoners and anyone determined to be a security threat to the Nazi regime. Himmler can go fuck himself, too. Well, these places, the concentration camps, they were extra legal, meaning people could be kidnapped and shipped away at any time, completely independent of any judicial review. The men who guarded these camps were part of what was called the death's head unit or what do they do or in the original german totenkopfverbande it is oh my very God. scary yeah the fucking skull and crossbones on their fucking hats yeah like i mean honestly what do you think you're fucking signing up for they what are, do you what do you think you're doing it is incredible the germans i mean i don't want i don't know if this is uh appropriate but they kind of cosplayed their way into this. We talked they about went this full on in like their well, uniforms. Well, like I they went full in. I really do think that the uniforms. Uh, it's a it's a big joke, you know, that everyone makes is that like, yeah, you know, the uniforms are so great. The uniforms are absolutely a part of it. Crucial. The uniform. The uniforms were a part of the romanticism. Absolutely. It was all a part of this entire like the the romanticism of being in the Aryans. You get this amazing uniform. You get all of this shit. It is very very romantic. You got Hugo. Boss designing all this stuff. Yeah. It's all primo grade. It's I a, mean, it's also the fucking telltale sign of a deeply insecure group of people. Yes, where they had to prop themselves up as being a bully. That was that's a, that's what it is, right? It's it's a bully's mentality. It's this concept of being like they can't earn respect by doing things correctly and doing things in a way that helps society. So they want to steal respect by creating fear. And so right. these puffed up fucking losers get to put on these fucking death cap, get to shroud yourselves in death, and then you get to feel super important because everybody's fucking scared of you, but right. you also have a backup 
of millions of other ones just like you. So you act like you're the fucking big bad boy, but it's only because you've got a bunch of other shitheads trying to back you up. And although all SS units wore a skull and crossbones on their caps, the SS death's head units set themselves apart by being the only ones authorized to wear the death's head symbol on their lapel. So you saw it right as you were looking at these guys. Like everywhere, at both places that you looked on these guys, if you were looking up or you were looking down, you saw death. Mm. And nobody wore that death's head prouder than Dr. Joseph Mengele. But before he arrived in the concentration camps, Mengele actually saw a fair bit of action as he was sent to the Eastern Front as a part of the SS Viking Division fighting the Russians. And it was here that Mengele earned the Iron Cross First Class after rescuing two soldiers from a burning tank under enemy fire, which was a distinction that set him apart from many of the other concentration camp doctors. Mengele was the only guy who had actually seen combat. Mm. But of course, it was also something that Mengele would use to pull rank, only adding to his almost supernatural arrogance, because that's yeah. another huge part of Mengele, is right. arrogance. Yeah. Well, he's totally he's totally in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. I, the image that comes up quite often when I think of Mengele is Tom Brady. Not to, <laughs> Tom Brady! Not to attack a, a tech. He's never killed anyone. He doesn't no, kill no, he doesn't but even he, eat meat. I, I view Mengele as the Tom Brady of Nazis, because, I mean, he was nothing but net for a while, man. Well, Tom he Brady plays was, football, so if he's well, nothing but net, that's actually bad. <laughs> the, it's the it's the sports. It's the sports. Them. He was doing good, but the idea of being like he quote unquote looked good. He fucking did the shit. He had a little death head pin. He told every you remind you of look at the pin every single time anybody had anything to say to him because mm-hmm. then you know he could get two extra brats. On the lunch line, when everybody else going to one, he got two. Ah, it's all about, you're saying it's all about the brats. <laughs> I'm just saying. Is that your he, professional analysis? It's like, I'm eating for two. It is for me and Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Big ups, everybody. I don't like Tom Brady or the Patriots, but comparing him to Mengele is a little too far, <laughs> Mr. Sprouse. It's a bit extreme. It's, it's extreme, it's, but it's a part of the idea, why do people dislike Tom Brady? Because he he's got the, the model girlfriend, he's always winning, he's got yeah. the head shaped like one of the statues from Easter Island, which I guess is a thing that people enjoy. With, with Mengele, Mengele had it all. Yeah, right. As, I mean, far, by, as, a, as far as a piece of shit Nazi goes, yeah, Mengele did have it all. I mean, this guy was on top of the fucking world. I mean, he was, right. a, he was a war hero. He was respected. He was a scientist. Like, he was one of the Nazi elites. Right. He was, a, he was the SS man. I think it was uh, somebody wrote that he was uh, the SS man that Hitler envisioned in Mein Kampf. It's he, like, was the, he was the guy. But he also was always very, uh, was, of course, it seems to be the ones that are extra dirty. As it like I brought up he looked like fucking desi arnaz he had brown hair he had uh dark eyes he looks and he'd always be like yeah. you're just you're, you know and then i say to my grandfather you know it's be like why do i look this way and, and he was just like i don't know it kind of runs in the family and i say you've got a lot of explaining to do <laughs> right no i he, mean honestly, that was he was extremely insecure about about his looks because he looked very slavic um it's interesting because it's a perfect time perfect place if you take sebastian bach from the 80s, uh-huh. people thought he was sexy. Yeah. And then you put him in any other time period, any other decade, and you're like, 
Who in the hell is that wiry, weird-looking mother? No, you could put weird. 1987 Sebastian Bach in 1967. He's still going to do well. He's, he's, uh, he will pull a lot of bush, dude. <laughs> well, Sebastian Bach can be dropped off into the future. Sebastian Bach could be dropped off in the fucking 1800s. Sebastian Bach is going to be poking hole for as, in any <laughs> decade. You put I him. think Sebastian Bach's look has come and gone. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. No, I you, know who's dead. you know who's very time-specific? Post Malone. Uh, Post Malone is very specific to 2019. I don't like his music. He's funny on Instagram, though. Yeah. Takes pictures. Well, it was in combat that Mengele was rumored to have suffered a concussion. And some people think that this, combined with combat PTSD, because he was in the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front, just go listen to Dan Carlin's Battle of Stalingrad series. It's woo. Eastern Front is some of the most horrific battlefield conditions of all time. Mm. Yeah, these motherfuckers saw some shit. Yeah. I mean, I hope that they all fucking died in an uh, oil fire, but mm-hmm. these Nazi guys did see some shit. Yeah. Uh, well, the Nazi guys and the Russians, you know, but I mean, yeah. but both of them were just fucking brutal to each other. Oh, yeah. But the head injury, combat PTSD, plus the extreme anti Semitism and the indoctrination at the University of Frankfurt, all that stuff together was what allowed Mengele to switch off his humanity when the time came, or at least that's what some people think. But Mengele might not have ever even gone to Auschwitz if not for his old friend, Professor Ottmar Freiherr von Varschur. See, by 1943, the war was already four years old, and the concentration camps had expanded greatly since the initial invasion of Poland. Also, two years earlier, in 1941, public protest in Germany had caused the Nazis to officially shut down the euthanasia programs mm-hmm. that had been responsible for gassing tens of thousands of mental patients and disabled people. Unofficially, the Nazis just kept killing them. Only now, they were doing it with lethal injections or just by starving them to death mm. over a yep. period of weeks or months. They actually increased the cruelty when Ugh. the public outcry came. They would starve them to death, right. and then as they were starving them to death, they would study them to see the effects of starving to death and what they would do to them. So that that is the kind of shit always where they managed to twist their cruelty. That's why the Nazis... Oh my gosh. I mean, in a true crime podcast, right? It's like we can, you keep coming out. We this is four years almost to the day that we did our Nazis and the Occult series, and so I feel like as a true crime, paranormal, fucking all things macabre podcast, we're gonna keep coming back to the Nazis every once in a while, every couple of years, because it's almost like you're forced to, because right. you come back to seeing these these creatures. They're, they're fucking creatures. They they manage to then they could twist any cruel thing into a deeper cruel thing right. by trying to validate it. You got to uh, you got to remember this stuff so we don't repeat it. There was another thing in a doc that I saw. They would just use the elements. So yeah. also they would just lock them outside in the freezing and they would uh, in the freezing cold and they would just see how long it takes for hypothermia to eventually kill them. And I mean, and they said that they were going out. I forget what they told them they were going out to do. It was something that was like supposed to be pleasurable or mildly mm-hmm. uh, like it was like a lie where they're like, we're going to give you a little like thing to do. Yeah. But uh, obviously, oh, it's just brutal. Yeah. And the most shocking part about all this, about what they were doing, about the T4 programs, all this shit happened in hospitals under the direction and full approval of doctors. So when the time for the final solution came... The infrastructure 
was already in place. Oh it's almost goodness. like they were kind of secretly planning for it the entire time. Yeah, not that secretly though no. either, right? Uh, I mean, everyone. If you were, if you were an aware German, you. I mean. I mean, the mental hospital stuff, uh, that was that had gone under the radar pretty hard. Eventually, the- people did find out, but that was in 1941. And by the time people started protesting the mental patients, uh, the killing of uh, the Jews had already begun. Right. It's funny. It was not funny. Um, but Germany, my my grandfather used to always say it's, uh, <laughs> it's the size of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like... It was strange for them to, um, I don't know. It, it just seems strange that they wouldn't kind of that they wouldn't know. pick up on the drift, you know? Uh, they, uh, I mean, it comes down to it's either I fuck with this entire system and destroy my entire life, destroy my oh, entire yeah, livelihood, done, I mean. um, possibly get thrown into a concentration camp myself, or um, I leave. Some people left. A lot they of would people leave left. to try to get the fuck out. Right. Um, and then it became harder and harder as the time as I got later and later. And then the rest of them just kind of did it. Yeah, they just yeah. kind of went along with it, or they lived a life completely separate from it. I mean, you could be a German farmer and uh, yeah. and still and just kind of sidestep all of it and just not have yeah. just like those and even say like, well, that's something that happens in the cities. Right, like that's right. I yeah, don't, dude, you I got don't their deal. beer growers are out there. You got a whole bunch of people like they've got their own like Humboldt area where you got guys out there just being like. I just make beer, man. Yeah. yeah I sit here, right. I make beer all day. I don't see anything. I just drink the beer because the beer seems to help me with the sleeping. Yeah. And then I go and I make it all in one go. Because they could say, you know, I'm not really interested in politics. Right. Because like, that's what Hitler was. That's what the Nazis were. To a lot of people in Germany, that was politics. I'm yep. like, I, you know, I don't, I don't really mess up. I don't follow politics. Right. I'm sorry. And then all of a sudden... It's World War Two. Yeah, I mean, how did your how did your grandfather's um, Beerstein hat business work at at the time period? It was great. It was great. He found a way to get sixty four ounces on either side, and uh, it turns out though the human neck can't hold it up. Can't hold the weight, but the hat which is itself. Why, but that's why I say nowadays the human neck needs to grow. Yes. to support the Beerstein hat. Yes, absolutely. That's the that was the major flaw. Yeah. Well, all the guys who had been in charge of murdering the more vulnerable members of society, they were just transferred to the camps. And the infrastructure was just transferred to the camps. And the way of keeping records was just transferred for the camps. And this was all decided by 15 bureaucrats discussing the final solution over lunch in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee. And so the concentration camps were quickly filled with the Jews and Romani of Europe, among many other smaller subgroups, such as gays, lesbians, and resistance fighters Mm. from every country the Nazis occupied, including their own. This is why representation matters. (laughs) They just needed to get a couple of people in there, Uh because I guarantee you if there's a Jewish person in there, they would be like, never mind, we'll we'll talk about this at dinner. Well, that was the problem. That's why it had to become all or nothing. Because Absolutely. the uh, the German government, I forget who it was. I want to say it was it was either Himmler or Hitler himself who said like everybody knows von decent Jew and they always pull the von decent Jew up and they were like yeah it's because they are human beings. It's almost like they're having human thoughts and like human feelings and not treating everybody like they are what they would be called. Right, exactly. And with this, when the concentration camps started filling up. Suddenly, the Nazis had an abundance of what they disgustingly called human material. Yep. <sighs> and it was most likely Ottmar Freiherr von Verschur who persuaded Josef Mengele to accept a position at Auschwitz 
all so they could be completely unfettered mm. in their obsessive study of twins. And this was where the human experimentation truly began, and that is where we'll pick back up next time Ugh. with an extensive tour of the methods and madness of Auschwitz and how Josef Mengele was at the center of it all. All right, Again, there it is, is Josef This Mengele. is a heavy hitter trip. Oh, this yeah. is really a heavy hitter trip in many ways. Absolutely. Mengele uh, really ended up taking the helm at Auschwitz, even though he had bosses. Even People forget that he wasn't like in charge of no. Auschwitz. No, he, was, he, was a part, he was a part of the system, but he really... The, his energy in taking over the experimentation of Auschwitz was fucking very scary. And in our series, so don't worry, we're going to be going through next week. It's going to be pretty intense. We're going right. to be going through. We're going to be very. going through Mengele's crimes. But guess what? We're also getting after that. Nazis on the run. Yeah, Woo! Nazi hunting. Yeah. Nazi hunting is going to be a fun time because once it once it segues into Mengele's running yeah. from. The Nazi hunters. It becomes a fucking action movie. There is a mm-hmm. great documentary. I mean, it gets it's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's called After Hitler. Basically, all of Europe had about eight years to do whatever they wanted to do, and they took some massive amounts of revenge. Yeah. Um, but this is always a good reminder. Be careful what you digest. Be careful how. Um, don't let yourself get uh, um, so. Uh, enamored and wrapped up into one certain thing or ideology make sure to like like a good um like a good uh, uh, diversify yeah you know just make sure uh that you don't uh, let yourself get caught up in this kind of stuff because it happens it's human nature yeah it is and it can happen at any time we always have to be careful hurting other people's hurting yourself always be careful the human the human mind very manipulable mm-hmm. so you got to always watch it and everyone can fall into it it's Anyone. not i mean you know it's funny we talk about scientology uh, uh, children of god a lot of really smart people yeah. doctors and lawyers you know it happens so be every, careful out there every cult is filled with people who said it would never happen to me yep um, all right, everyone. Well, there it is. Joseph Mengele, part one. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Very informative. And uh, yeah, oh, let's see here. What do we have to do? We have to, we're going to be announcing some live shows here in the near future, yep. um, which will be exciting. I don't think we're quite ready to do that yet. Not quite, no. but we're almost there. But we will be announcing some live shows in the very near future. And we cannot wait to see everybody on the road this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to watch us during our small hi- uh, hiatus as we wrap up this book, which is going to be Badass. Yeah. We're getting Badass. some illustrations in on a regular basis from our uh, from Tom Neely. Have we talked about our fucking fantastic illustrator at all? Have we talked I, about Tom Neely? This, I, this dude, Tom Neely, you might know him from, what was it? Uh, Henry, Henry and Glenn, and Glenn Forever. Forever. Henry and Glenn Forever. He has been creating some seriously awesome, I would, awesome fucking imagery. I would say some of the uh, images that he has produced are iconic. Yeah, I mean, this this, guy, this so motherfucker's crushing it. Yes. It's so good to see his work, man. We're, we're working together beautifully. I can't wait for you guys to see this shit. It's going to be awesome. Um, So once we finish that, uh, once we finish the book, we're back on the road. But until then, go to www.lastpodcastlive.com. Watch our live show from, oh, just a month ago, I guess, in Chicago. A month or two, yeah. Uh, it's So it's still fresh off, hot off the presses. Um, so that's only $6.66. Uh, if there's any time a problem with the website, don't worry about it. We'll get it fixed ASAP. Always. Uh, so just we're, keep we're on going back, asshole. please. We're We're trying to fix it. Yes, it's just us, as always. Um, and let's see. Is there anything... 
do we have any other uh, announcements? Oh, thanks everyone to come for uh, who came out to Forbidden Planet. Yeah, oh, I wish I was there. It was so I much fun. I wanted to be there, but that was so much fun to see everybody. Um, and pick up our issue of Fangoria if you get a shot. Yeah. Uh, it's a cool article. It's very cool. Yeah, it's uh, Fangoria number two. We got a cool little story in there. So yeah, pick it up and and always support Fangoria. They're cool fucking people. Where everyone who's involved in uh, the reboot is a uh, super fucking cool. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Fangoria is fucking great. And the cover, I, I don't think the covers are quite as extreme as they used to be, but the content is still. Yeah. So that's I all mean, that matters. I mean, let's give them a shot. We'll see what happens with the next one. Yeah. Because I think they'll ramp it up slowly. I mean, I, I miss it. that. Because I miss hiding my Fangoria. Yeah. Because oh, yeah, my I mom would... used to get so upset when I had it in the house. Oh, yeah. Mine oh. too. Every mom got up so upset. I, you know, I'm going to say rightfully so. I don't want... <laughs> it's weird to be yeah, like I one of those 10. moms who's like, let me read it after you do. Like, this is, this is supposed to be for me. <laughs> yeah, I was telling the main uh, editor because uh, he was also there yesterday at the Forbidden Planet uh, signing. Um, it used to be in all the... It used to be in all the adult like magazines. It was sections. in the porno section. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. in the porno section, which is uh, hilarious. It's so fun how shit changes, man. I mean, honestly, y'all, don't be Nazis today. If you have the opportunity to be a Nazi today, don't. Don't. Say no. Say, Say no. Say no. Hail Satan. All right, everyone. Hail yourselves. Hail game. Hail me, please. Magustalations. <coughs> Are you sick? Are you coughing? <coughs> I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> you coughed it out. <laughs>